Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Amanda Silver. Amanda is CVP of product for developer tools at Microsoft. Her team delivers the Visual Studio platform and Visual Studio code. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Amanda, uh, before we get into the meat of things, uh, would you give our listeners maybe a little bit of an introduction to yourself? You tell them how you got started in the industry. Sure. I mean, you know, I got started in the industry uh, in 2001, actually. I started at Microsoft right at the uh, era when .NET was first coming out. I wasn't here for the inception of .NET. I think I arrived right after the first launch of .NET. And my first uh, features that I worked on as a PM in, in the team was Com Interrupt. Before that, I had, I think, a couple of technical internships as a college undergrad. One was converting a signal processing library to uh, the C++ standard template library. And I was a Unix sysadmin in college. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that gave me a lot of good background. Uh, but over the last... I guess it's now 20 years, I've just worked on developer tools and platforms at Microsoft. And so I've kind of worked on everything from Windows and SQL and everything that everybody thinks about as Microsoft platforms, uh, always from the developer perspective. I've worked on Xbox, a little bit on Quantum, you know, basically anything that has to do with any of our platforms, I've, I've touched in some way, but always from the developer perspective. Okay. So, um, I guess that has really led to you to what you're still working on these days. And what what is that? What is your role in that developer tools these days? So today we have a pretty good sized team that works on all of our compilers, programming languages, application runtimes, uh, tools and IDEs, uh, the exper- the developer experience for Azure. Uh, all of those things is part of my team. Anything that that basically, if if you're a developer or you're doing some kind of automation for a platform at Microsoft, that's what my team builds. So TypeScript, Visual Studio Code, Visual Studio, .NET, all of those things. Well, uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, Visual Studio Code, by the way, and that's pretty much what I daily drive. So thanks for that. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) My daily driver is still Visual Studio. I've been transitioning to Visual Studio Code more for JavaScript development these days. I, I was using WebStorm for a number of years and, and really have enjoyed making that transition. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Visual Studio is still definitely the best experience that we have for .NET developers and C Sharp and, you know, huge number of C++ developers, especially in AAA gaming, uh, use and prefer Visual Studio because of the strength and the power and all of the configurability that you have there. And then client development is also really great in Visual Studio. Um, But for JavaScript developers, for Python developers, uh, VS Code is is probably what's going to be the best experience for them. 
you know, between those two, you hands down have the best <laughs> IDEs and editors uh, for programming, like, period. Well, it's it's all about listening to developers and, you know, what their pain points are and, and addressing them. So with that, before hitting record, we were talking about um, next generation and, and mentoring and helping those get into the industry and, and what we can do. What are what are the things that we can do more of to help inspire the next generation of developers or uh, help people get into the industry, help them feel comfortable and welcomed and productive? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, like everything that I do that I work on is all about the fact that we have a massive developer shortage right now. We think that there's going to be 150 million tech or tech adjacent jobs in the next five years in terms of demand. And we have fewer than 10 million pro developers in the United States. Wow. And so the demand is just absolutely enormous. And of course, that's why it's great to be, it's a great generation to be a developer. It's very exciting and, and you can work on all this amazing technology. And certainly as you know, the economy is going through this situation with the pandemic recovery and the economic impact that's happening with that, um, there's going to be a lot of people who are looking to transition into higher paying jobs, transition into higher skilled jobs and acquire all of those skills as part of that. And probably the next generation also is seeing this as, a, as an incredible opportunity to get into it as well. There are so many things that we can do to actually bring more people into the industry. I, I think about this as like minting new developers. That's basically how we have to think about it. And it's not just like, can we actually bring them with their skill sets and prepare them with the right sets of skills, but also can we actually make this next generation of the tech workforce more diverse um, so that we actually have more diverse voices creating technology that really is intended to serve everyone. There's a lot of different things that we can do. We've studied <laughs> deeply many of the problems that relate to different dimensions of the various pipeline problems that we have in the tech industry. Everything from you know the curriculum, what do you actually need to know and understand to be successful in tech, to you know how do we actually support people with diverse backgrounds? How do we support people who have non-traditional backgrounds to transfer into the tech industry and become developers? Um, so these are all these different things that we think about. One really important discovery that that we learned about over the past year, uh, two years now, is first of all, there's just an absolute shortage of educators in terms of CS professors, uh, TAs, you know, people who can actually teach coding to one another. And part of the reason for that is that there's such incredible demand from the industry for everyone to move into an industry job. <laughs> <laughs> so we just don't have great educators that are out there that are supporting people who are interested in learning how to code. And there's such huge demand waiting lists at every university, every communi community college to actually get into a class that can teach them how to code. So that's thing one is just, you know, we need to, we need to actually get the industry to be more involved in actually bringing in the next generation of developers and helping people transition their skill sets. The other thing that we're seeing is that a lot of people, especially those who don't necessarily have traditional backgrounds, or like me, I had a dad who was helping me, you know, get into STEM since I was three years old. I was very lucky. But there are a lot of people who don't have that kind of background and don't have that kind of support throughout their career. And one of the things that we need to we've recognized that we need to help them with is 
is this, this aspect of grit and resilience in tech that is so important for you to be successful. You know, when I think about like even just debugging hundreds of times a day, probably thousands of times a day, you actually go through this cycle of failure. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, where you recognize there's something that's actually a bug in your application. And how do I resolve this and figure out how to make this right? Um, and that also happens on day one when you actually need to set up your dev box. You know, that's such a painful experience and you almost always need to ask for help to actually get that to work from, you know, a human. <laughs> right. And so there's an aspect of resilience, um, self-efficacy, um, you know, de- self-determination, the, the notion that I can actually do this and I have confidence that I can figure this out. All of those things we believe are skills that actually people need to can be taught and, and should be taught. And it's almost like an alternative, you know, tech curriculum that we, that we've been trying to support. So we've released a couple of videos and a mentoring program that actually will help with all of this, which we can provide links to. I'd, I'd like to see that because like I spend the majority of my day programming, wondering what it is that I'm doing and just knowing that if I keep at it, I will force the compiler to do what I want it to do instead of what it wants me to do. <laughs> and so I just keep banging my head into the wall until it, until it works. For someone coming in new, like I, I've picked up extra languages or, or extra frameworks, and it's always this daunting, I don't know what I'm doing feeling. So for someone, someone brand new who's never done anything coming in, I, I can't even imagine how thick that, that wall of, of, that they have to bang their head through to, to get going do you have any any quick tips for for someone who's trying to help uh, someone new to to pick that up? Just like just keep keep getting at it, and and you'll you'll get it eventually. I know it's not easy, but you got to keep going. Yeah. Because you know sometimes I re, you know I say that to somebody, and you know maybe it works at first, but after after six hours of it not working, they're usually done, right? <laughs> yeah. So we worked with um, with Mount Holyoke, which is a a college that has actually a fantastic uh, computer science department that that uh, has amazing retention rates in terms of, you know, keeping people interested in the field. Um, We worked with them to develop a a curriculum to help with these skill sets. And we've produced 10 videos that are like two minutes long. They're super easy um, that go through these different kinds of skills, like, like tech resilience. I mean, sorry, uh, self uh, self efficacy, uh, growth mindset. um, You know, a lot of these, these grit aspects um, and that's been published. We published it on Microsoft and culture. And what we found is that actually sharing these concepts, not just with the students who are struggling through this, but actually with the people who are mentoring them is just as important because, you know, when you think about, I remember I, when I was in the eighth grade, my sister, maybe I was in the 10th grade and my sister was in the eighth grade or something like that. And she was going through, uh, learning algebra and and algebra came super easy to me and it was really a struggle for her and i remember going through this moment that that i was just convinced that there was no way that she was ever going to learn algebra <laughs> <laughs> it was just not physically possible like there was some you know intrinsic difference between her and me that that made it so that i could learn algebra and she could not learn algebra and you know if you take, if you watch these videos and you kind of get this idea of growth mindset, then then you just that it's not how you think about it. There is no intrinsic difference that anyone 
has that prevents them from understanding a concept like that. It's just a matter of figuring out what is the right way to teach that particular person uh, how to learn that skill. And so I think when mentors come into a relationship with a mentee with that in mind, it's not bringing the mentee through how I learned how to code. It's how you need to learn to code. And so that also becomes almost a puzzle in itself, right? When you're interacting with somebody, how can you understand what they're going through, what their mental model is of what they think they understand, and how can you bring them through the next level of understanding? In this era where we're all now working from home and everybody is is feeling a little bit of isolation, I'm, I'm really enjoying being on Teams calls and or watching Twitch live coders and at least feeling some connection with humans, uh, especially the live coders, some I, I really enjoy that will celebrate their failures. <laughs> and you can see the, the mental model, you can see them working a problem, you can see them hitting a brick wall, feeling like they don't know what they're doing, just like me. And Yeah, yeah. This is such a generational shift, actually, in terms of how people are learning tech, right? It's huge. Mm -hmm. Because in my era, it was the RTFM era. Mm -hmm. I think I think those who've been in the industry for a long time know what that stands for, but it's read the F manual <laughs> uh, <laughs> or the man page, you know, depending on which which uh, where you were coming from. <laughs> but it was kind of this idea that you needed to do self-help to the nth degree before you were allowed to ask anybody a question. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the mentality of, of the generation that I got brought up in. Um, for this new generation, everything is social, everything is collaborative. And they're not learning from man pages or documentation, they're learning from videos. Um, they're learning from Twitch, they're learning from TikTok, like they're learning from these bite sized uh, multimedia experiences, but they're still learning tech, and they're still learning how to code. Um, so, you know, super fascinating. That kind of makes me wonder. So okay, so like Stack Overflow, I don't think anyone would say it's not a wonderful thing. But, you know, you were talking about grit earlier and having something so fantastic as Stack Overflow or or even the the modifications that have been made to the Microsoft Docs, uh, you know, in recent years. I mean, I remember having to load up CD3 of the MSDN library, hitting F1 and then searching for the thing that you wanted. <laughs> and so even like, search didn't even work that well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, had to, yeah. you had to type it exactly right. But like now with with Stack Overflow and and some of these other services, there's there's less determination necessary. You can ask a question and get an answer sometimes, like pretty quick. So I wonder if I don't want Stack Overflow to go anywhere. But it, it's is it possible that it's almost damaging to new developers because they don't they don't get that determination? They, like they didn't have to work six hours to write "Hello World" to the screen. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's also the same debate that often happens around, you know, should everybody learn to be able to write their own file system? Oh, yeah. Should everybody Absolutely. be able to learn to write their own kernel? <laughs> Every, everyone should know assembly. Why, why doesn't well, everybody know assembly? <laughs> here's the thing, right? If we have 150 million jobs in the next five years, not everybody is going to be able to write a, a virtual file system to be able to enter the tech industry. And so I think we really do need to think about there is a culture of gatekeeping a little bit that happens in, in the industry for sure. Um, and in various communities, you know, uh, Stack Overflow has their own norms in terms of, you know, what's, <laughs> what's a, you know, good question, what's not a good question. 
And so, you know, I think there is a certain amount that we have to help people understand how much they can help themselves uh, before they ask for help from other people. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the levels of abstraction that we need people to be able to work with today are very different than the levels of abstraction that, that you know, we needed to work with 20 years ago. I think one of the things that's really interesting is this next generation of people in the tech industry are going to have different skill sets because, you know, if you even think about the fact that search has changed so much over the past 10 years yeah. in terms of how I code, right? It's not, it's not that I have an ID and I'm doing all my development on my box. I have an ID in a browser because <laughs> I'm constantly switching between, you know, the code that I'm writing and the documentation or a search or some kind of thing. This is constant. I think the idea that you need to memorize all of the different algorithms, the binary search trees, how to how to sort them and things like that. It's just not, that's just not what this generation would actually do because you now can go and search for what that algorithm should be. You still need to understand like basics of computational complexity and things like that to understand how efficient your algorithms are going to be. But, you know, the idea that that everybody needs to memorize this tome of, of all of the various different merge sorts or the merge sort algorithm and, the, you know, bubble sort or whatever it is, it's just a different, it's a different generation when, when you can actually, at the touch of your fingers, get an answer to any question uh, that you might have around algorithms or around APIs or anything like that. And you, you think differently. So when are you guys going to bring that search and browser right into my IDE? Well, you <laughs> know, I don't have to switch. I think one of, <laughs> I think you know we do we actually have been working on it a lot with in in collaboration with the Bing team, uh, improving our search experience in Visual Studio. And you know we don't want necessarily want to replace the browser, mm. but we do want to make it easier when you're in the context of the code that you're writing to be able to do search that searches that are contextual that are informed by the code that you're actually writing at this moment. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. The the whole in, IntelliSense, like having IntelliSense and then having, oh, it's got a different name now. IntelliCode. Like IntelliCode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Having IntelliCode is amazing. You know, used to, I couldn't program without F1. And now I just put my mouse over top of something and it's, oh, there's all the information I need. That is game changing from a programmer's perspective, even if you're a new programmer, because you don't have to go and look up how to use that thing that you're trying to use. It just shows you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the other dimension that we really think about in addition to minting new developers is developer velocity. So this idea of not just how can I make an individual developer more productive with every character that they write, uh, make them more intelligent, make them write the, the correct character and fewer characters uh, to be able to write the code that they need to write, but also as they work in a team, how can we make that team more efficient as well? Um, so that they have fewer bugs that make it into production. They have less, you know, remediation that they need to do. You know, one of the things that's really fascinating, depending on the study, there are a couple different studies, but somewhere between 25% and 65% of commit comments, like code review comments, are stylistic, not behavioral. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if we could actually help New developers who are new to a team, whether they're a junior developer coming out of college or they're just an industry developer coming into your code base, uh, learn what are what are the style norms for that code base as they're writing code for the first time, so that you can reduce that amount, all of those comments that you'd have to go through and react to, 
that would be pretty incredible. And that, that saves a lot of time. So that's a good example of the kinds of things that we think we can do with IntelliCode, with you know machine learning being applied to analyzing code bases and helping developers as they write code. You had mentioned with the need for more developers and getting developers where we can, minting the new developers from where they are, where they exist, whether that's fresh off the street, whether that's out of college, out of a, a code school or a code camp. I enjoy working with newer developers and figuring out what their their knowledge base is and okay we're we're implementing this feature what can you tell me that you've learned in this scenario so far is is there something that we could or should do to get that understanding a little bit earlier and and maybe help get that that common vocabulary together earlier hmm it's a great question just kind of you're trying to understand like where that new developer is coming from yeah. in terms of their background I mean, how often when you have a new member on the team, do you actually talk about what their experience is? I, I'm not sure that I've ever had that conversation with, hmm. you know, you have it in the interview, but you don't have it when you're bringing this new person into the code base. You're kind of, it's like you give them the map, you know <laughs> what I mean? But, but you don't actually talk about like, have you ever driven stick shift? Yeah. Right. And maybe mm-hmm. that's part of what we need to, to, start when we think about, you know, a lot of times we talk about the the notion of like tribal knowledge that there's, mm. there's, you know, for a given team, there is this um, knowledge base that basically everybody in the team has amassed. And part of the challenge in being a newbie on the team is you need to extract that tribal knowledge. How can we actually share that tribal knowledge with people or create self-documenting code or other things like that so that people understand how they can come on, on board I think there's an aspect of the skill set that that's really interesting, uh, where you know we don't really talk about what that individual developer is bringing to the equation, and I, I think that's a really good point. My background is really a sort of self-taught, or I love uh, community-taught individual, and uh, one of the things that really was a huge challenge for me to uh, get into any of the Microsoft tooling was the lack of documentation and the closed source-ness of it when I was getting into it. So I started going after PHP and other things that had a lot better documentation, Linux, and so on and so forth. But that's not the case with Microsoft these days. And uh, I'm super inspired by what Microsoft has done in the open source area and what they've done with their basically making the tooling uh, open and available What's Microsoft's vision for sort of bringing that even more uh, and even branching into some of the areas like low code uh, or no code? Yeah. So to me, this is all about like, how do we help developers and their teams scale better? And it really, how do we help the industry scale better given the demand that we're seeing right now? Huge demand. And especially during this pandemic period, there's been even more demand for digital solutions. It's like everybody has moved to telehealth and curbside pickup and all of these things that require new digital solutions to be created to actually facilitate. Um, There's just this huge swath of all these new customer solutions that have come out in the last, just in the last year. I think open source is definitely a really important way that development teams can scale. 
certainly there's an aspect from the platform perspective when it comes to .NET or if it comes to Visual Studio Code, where you know there's an advantage to us to make it open source because a lot of enterprises trust it more when they can see the code base. They, it's easier to extend. And obviously, if we're in the business of being a platform, then we want to make sure that it's extensible. But when it comes to enterprise software, the thing that's really true, and it's true for our own code as well, because we use open source extensively inside of Microsoft as well, including open source that Microsoft didn't author, is that it allows you to, to build on the shoulders of giants, right? There's so mm-hmm. many solutions that are out there uh, whether it's, you know, connecting via a, a real-time socket. Uh, it's a good example. There are, there are probably 50 to 100 different libraries out there that allow you to use WebSockets for a, a video conferencing, as an example, right, to build mm-hmm. that kind of an application. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there are advantages to having, you know, your own version of that for performance reasons, for the scale that you might need. But if you're building something, quick for, you know, then you can, you can definitely use a lot of the solutions that are out there. The thing that is the most important is that you are focused on the code that only you can write. That's really what I want to focus on is like, how can I make sure that you only need to write the code that, that only you can write for your organization and everything else you can actually use uh, from the community. And you, this is also an incredible way to learn too. You can look at other people's code and learn how to use various APIs or how to, you know, construct things, uh, how how to organize things, um, different kinds of calling patterns, coding conventions. There's so much that you can learn from the community as well. So to me, a lot of open source is really about how do we help teams scale. And the thing that's kind of interesting about it is. There's so many advantages to it in terms of the community, in terms of, you know, uh, being able to hire talent that's out there in the community and find the talent that's out there in the community, Um, being able to, you know, put all of these different pieces together, almost like Legos. But there's also a little bit of concern about it as well, because, you know, when you start to use open source, then you are basically inviting everyone into your supply chain, (laughs) right? Yeah. And so the another big, huge focus for us has been on securing that supply chain. How can mm-hmm. we make sure that the open source that you take a dependency on, you can have confidence that the person that you wrote it was the person that you were expecting to write it, that the security vulnerabilities that have already been identified um, have been addressed. And so there's a lot of stuff that we're doing in, in GitHub uh, with GitHub Advanced Security, for example, that will help you find those kinds of things. Um, Dependapot is an example of something that can help you discover all of the dependencies that your library has. You know, we've been working on improving the security of NuGet package authoring and consumption, as an example. So this is just this huge, huge, huge uh, challenge that we have over the next few years, uh, but really... This is all about helping developers and the finite you know, number of, of people we have in the industry scale as quickly as we possibly can. Yeah, the, the first time Dependabot submitted a PR to one of my personal projects, I'm like, what is this magic? It <laughs> yeah. solved, the, solved a problem for me that I didn't even know I had, fixed it and submitted a PR. I'm like, yes, merge that, please. And it seems like that is such a departure from the Microsoft of the Balmer years where, where people were spelling Microsoft with the dollar sign and it was a, a big evil corporation and it's just so not that anymore. I was working with a, a guy a couple of years ago 
when the GitHub acquisition was announced, he was just furious because he had that old <laughs> mental model of Microsoft. But just the advancements, the continued advancement of the things that are being done at GitHub it just shows the commitment that Microsoft has to open source. Yeah, I mean, that has certainly been a huge change that I've seen personally um, from where I sit over the past, you know, decade now. I'm looking at the date. I'm looking at the date because uh, the first, you know, first time that Microsoft really started to use open source and to actually redistribute open source was with jQuery with ASP.NET about a decade ago. Um, and about that same time, I started to work uh, with with Anders and a bunch of other colleagues on uh, on the early version of TypeScript, and um, and you know that's a good example where we actually originally wrote it to be used by the Office team who is transitioning you know the client software of Office, which is originally a C code base, uh, over into Office three six five, which was going to be hosted by the browser. And, you know, the, the office team had a question for us around, like, what's the best way to deal with this amount of JavaScript? <laughs> and we didn't, we didn't really have a great answer at the time. After we looked at the problem for a little while, we kind of realized, well, okay, so if we build something for them, we have to make sure that it's not something unique to Microsoft developers, because, like internal Microsoft developers, because if we do that, then we're basically not going to benefit from the way that the ecosystem is evolving right? We're going to be on our own little island. And so what we wanted to do is to actually build something that all developers use um, and that that kind of docked well with the general web ecosystem. At the time, web developers were fairly hostile towards Microsoft. I think there was some hangover of, of IE6 uh, in those days. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so the idea that that we could release something to JavaScript developers that they would receive well and be friendly towards was daunting. And so, you know, when we first started working on TypeScript, it was, we were pretty intimidated in a lot of ways around whether or not uh, we thought that the JavaScript community would like it um, and use it. Our hope was certainly that they would, but, um, but, you know, we just needed to make sure that it wasn't its own little island of tooling so that our office team would end up in their own in their own island and not be able to benefit from the rest of the web community and what web developers were developing for for their development practices and so i think you know obviously the last 10 years have been pretty amazing it's a little less than 10 years it's about 12 uh, 9 years pretty amazing for typescript's growth but it's certainly a big difference between you know, what it took to get TypeScript to be open source in those days versus what it would take to, to release something open source these days at Microsoft, right? Took me about at least a summer to get oh, wow. uh, approval to get TypeScript <laughs> to be open source. Um, but now, you know, the default, especially for developer uh, frameworks and programming languages and things like that is, is open source for sure. It really is a, a big change uh, in, in just the way Microsoft operates. It's crazy. So earlier you had mentioned the this massive influx of developers over the next five years. And I guess it's really it's just a just a matter of math, right? They double every so many years and everything is tech now. There's there isn't a single thing that doesn't have a computer in it. So somebody's got to write the code. Is there anything else that Microsoft is working on that that will help with the influx? Uh, new tools or 
uh, more extensive training or, or? Yeah, well, there's a ton. I mean, obviously, you know, we continue to work on LinkedIn skills and Microsoft Learn, which is this new website that basically can bring people through different different skill sets uh, incrementally so they can learn different kinds of technologies. We are investing in, you know, the Global Skills Initiative, which will bring all of these different skills to over 25 million people. Um, so that's what we're trying to work on with like free learning content and certifications and all of that kind of stuff. So yes, definitely. There's a tremendous amount of content that's out there. The other stuff that we're, we're trying to do is, is all of this stuff around kind of the developer velocity aspects of it. When you come to a new code base, you know, how quickly can you learn that code base? Uh, and how can we have tools to actually help you learn that, learn that code base? You know, I mentioned at the beginning of this how challenging it is to actually set up a dev developer environment. And one of the things that I think is exciting about the next couple of years is as we introduce GitHub Code Spaces, which basically is a way for you to describe a developer environment in a repeatable way that can then be instanced as a VM or a container in the cloud. Uh, that makes it so that if you set up a developer environment for your project, the next person on your team doesn't have to go through the rigmarole of having to set up that dev box. If you think about any bootcamp, a bootcamp cannot be less than a day because at least the first half of that day is just doing the dev box setup. And so this will take that from you know, setting up a Python environment, for example, which is probably one of the hardest stacks <laughs> to be able to stand up properly because of all of the different versions that you need and things that can go from, you know, an error prone half day to a couple of minutes of running a script. Well, that made me think of the remote containers that VS Code supports. I absolutely love that feature and I can't wait till the parody of that feature is in Visual Studio proper. I want to get that in my C-sharp projects, um, but I'm still using Visual Studio for, for that. That feature is, is a complete game changer because like you said, you set up your entire dev environment and not only like your dev environment as far as the language libraries installed and, and helper libraries, but also the database that's going to pretend to be the production database and you know Redis and whatever else. And none of it has to be like on your machine. I saw a tweet that you did... Um, I don't know when it was, but sometime in the past, and it was, and uh, you were you were kind of doing a pun on somebody keeping their system from getting rusty or something like that because they they had that built was yesterday. Up, <laughs> okay, yeah, they. Well, I guess I, it was in Twitter. And I didn't scroll down too far, so it couldn't have been too long ago. But um, you know, they had built up all, an entire Rust environment, like in a in a container or a VM. I'm not sure which one, but uh, just to be able to do that, and then, like you said, check it into to source control, and then. The next person that comes along is, oh, just uh, you need Git and you need this IDE and then you're good. Like that is amazing because it turns that half day into, like you said, like just a couple minutes. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And it's also super helpful. You know, I think the default for developers, uh, there's this pets versus cattle debate, right? For your dev box, <laughs> like, like, you know you think about your main machine as your pet, right? You have to, it requires care and feeding and love and all of these kinds of things. And, um, and so, you know, that idea I think uh, can go away. Like you have to set up a dev box. You know, I was, I was talking to senior management at some point and I was explaining how often you have to set up a dev box as a developer 
And, yeah. and people who are not in the industry just don't get it. They don't understand uh, how frequent this is. But you actually have to do it like mul- sometimes multiple times a week because you have to like set up the dev environment for your main project that you're working on. Now you're being asked to go look at some new technology. <laughs> so you need to set up another dev environment to go look at that new technology you know, and then there's some other bug that comes in that you have to respond to. And that's, you know, based on an SDK that shipped six months ago. Uh, And so then you need to set up yet another dev box, right? So it's just this really frequent activity. And if we can reduce that down from hours to, you know, just a couple of minutes, um, or even less, yeah, I, I think that's a perfect example of how we can improve developer velocity. We've talked about a lot of things. Uh, are, are there any resources that you might point people to um, who are trying to get started with different things? They're looking for a mentor. They're trying to get started in development. Pretty much anything that we've talked about. Yeah, I mean, well, there's so many different things that 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 I could point you to. You know, first of all, I think the um, series on tech resilience is definitely a must watch, not just for you know people who are trying to get into tech as students. But those who mentor them, even those who are mentoring people who are new on your team, we found it useful even for our own team in terms of, you know, creating the culture of, of the growth mindset and kind of this all, always be learning um, organization. So we've used it internally. So that I would definitely point to is the InCulture website um, that, that we've talked about. Um, you know, I think the skills initiative and all of the things that we've done there around all of the LinkedIn learning, um, the free certificates, the learning labs uh, in GitHub, uh, all of those things are basically free resources that we've been working on to help, you know, help uh, usher in this new generation of, of uh, developers really. So I definitely look at, look at all of those things. Another couple of really fun things, you know, like I said earlier, my dad was a huge influence on me getting into the tech industry. And uh, not, he wasn't in tech, he was a physicist, but he was in <laughs> STEM. And, and so I think, you know, for those, I know there's a lot of people in, in tech who, who are parents and, you know, want to encourage their kids to get interested in STEM fields. Um, and so what, some of the other really fun stuff that we've done is we've created labs for kids uh, and students who are in higher education uh, in partnership with Netflix uh, to be based on that movie Over the Moon. Um, so that's a good example. That's targeted at more kind of the, the younger generation of kids who aren't yet in high school or college. And then there's also something that we've been working with uh, LeBron James on with Space Jam that we recently uh, released, which are just basically like little puzzles, coding puzzles, so that kids can learn how to code. Uh, using, you know, using our technology, of course, but, um, but it's something that's really fun to do with your kids. And then I also recently did a couple of labs with my kid who's seven with Wonder Woman. We've been working on the Wonder Woman 1984 with something called Make Code, um, which is something we've been working on, which is specifically a coding environment, all web hosted, um, that allows kids to start to learn to code using blocks uh, and then they can get into, you know, TypeScript or Python actual coding in an actual coding editor once they become a little bit proficient. But it's kind of like a, you know, really easy way to create gaming environments, for example, or to actually interact with IoT. So definitely a lot of fun, fun different things to look at. 
Uh, has there been anything helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those maybe looking to level up their own careers? I think, you know, a lot of times I'm get, I get asked the question from college hires who were like myself 20 years ago. Uh, what would you say to someone who's coming into the industry at that point in their lives? Um, and there's, there's a couple of things that, that, um, that I always say. Number one is use the fact that you're the new person as long as you possibly can. Uh, that's, there's two reasons why that's super important. One is it allows you to ask questions that other people have not asked in a while, right? It doesn't mean they haven't asked them, but they haven't asked them in a while. And bringing that beginner's mind to anything is always incredibly useful to everyone. Um, so, you know, use that. Uh, the other thing is, you know, when I came into the industry, there was kind of this idea that like taking notes at meetings was a secretary's job. There was kind of like a gendered aspect to it. Right. Um, and what I found was that, that by taking notes, um, it actually was a position of power because it allowed me to force everybody in the meeting to explain the concepts to me so that I could take great notes. Uh, if I was going to send them out, I was basically the the person who was keeping the record of what was discussed and what was concluded on. Um, and I also controlled like the next step of action items and things like that. And so that was, I found that to be a really incredible way to get my foothold in the first few years. And, and uh, so that's the other thing I would say. That's, that's an interesting social work hack. Uh, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that one before. I like that one. So where can our listeners go to follow you uh, and keep up with whatever it is you're working on? Well, I'm, I'm definitely on Twitter every once in a while. Uh, Amanda K. Silver. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn every once in a while. I think I'm also Amanda K. Silver there, too. Let me check. Yes, Amanda K. Silver. Um, but, you know, if you just keep looking at the Visual Studio blog, the Visual Studio Code blog, uh, always look at, you know, learn.microsoft.com to see what's the new stuff coming out there. Um, and the aka.ms forward slash skills uh, also has all of our new content for, for reskilling and upskilling and, and acquiring new skills. Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. That was Amanda Silver. Amanda is CVP of product for developer tools at Microsoft. Her team delivers the visual studio platform and visual studio code. If you like this episode, please like rate and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. Catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 